This is episode 62 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. I'm your host, Andrew. And I am your host, Eli, and welcome back to our listeners. It's early November 2019. We've gotten our first snow. We have two. Did you know that Machkala got You guys got actually snow? got it in Machkala. Wow. We got snow. We got several millimeters. It was like big. <laughs> we In Pitigorsk, we got almost a foot of snow. Yeah, that's crazy. It, it, it dumped all over the Caucasus. We were seeing on Instagram, Elbrus and Dumbai, people are skiing already. Do you want to know what? It snowed and it dropped below freezing and our heat's not on yet. Oh, they still have not turned your heat on. Right, because it's back up to like the 60s today. So listeners, for those of you who may not be familiar with how heating works in Russian apartments, unless they are brand new apartments that are off grid or have their own private, all the old apartments have central heating. And I don't mean central to the building. I mean central to the city. So there is a day. To the country. (laughs) There is a day chosen by powers that be. (laughs) in which all the heat in all the apartment buildings turns on. And you have no control over your own heat, when it goes on or how much it's on. It just is on. (laughs) And then there's a day in the spring, like in April, when, like, it goes off. (laughs) So typically in the mineral waters region, April 15th is the day they turn on the, turn off the heat. Turn off the heat. Yeah, turn off the heat. Uh, and then October 15th is usually when they turn on the heat. Right. So essentially what happens is that month after they turn the heat off in the spring, you're still, cause at night, especially it's yeah. still cool. So you're cold that month. And then the month leading up to, yes. Uh, October 15th, the heat being turned on, but you're, frankly, you're really cold at night. It's so nice to go to sleep in a chilly room with a big comforter on. The rest of the year, we're just sort of like warm. All right, well, Speak so much for, for yourself. The heat. <laughs> hey, man, speaking of turning on the heat, I want to give a couple shout outs. Uh, a couple months ago, we, up. we unveiled our Patreon campaign. Patreon is a service for creative people, creatives to um, give their supporters an opportunity to support them financially. So this is like, we're not selling anything. We're not charging for our podcast, but we would love uh, for our supporters to get behind us financially and help just kind of carry the overhead. And then of course, once the overhead is covered, you know, start paying into our Swiss bank accounts for a rainy day. (laughs) We don't have Swiss bank accounts. So (laughs) we have Russian bank accounts. Eli, I think, I, I don't know if you were actually describing me as a creative, but I think that's the first time I've ever been described as a creative. We are in this together, Andrew. You are a creative in more ways than one. Um, one of the big ways is is just like dealing with me. You have to be creative in that. All right. I, so yes. we, we made a video. We have a Patreon page. I think it's patreon.com slash caucus talk. We have links all over our website. We're going to put yes. some more. Anyway, we really would love your support. We have got two monthly supporters. I want to give a major shout out to Matthew Johnson. From Utah. From Utah, And from, and Craig Richards from. Australia. I was going to say down under, but I've heard that some Australians find that pejorative from like the over aboves. And mm. in fact, when I have taught on uh, 
culture and adjustment. I show uh, one of the graphics I show to to demonstrate cultural relativity is it's called the upside down world map, and I've it is the world this. map upside down, but all the text is right side up. Yeah, and it has and, Australia uh, at the top, right? It has Australia at the top, and if you think about it, there's no like up or down in the solar system. It's <laughs> it's purely you know. We have a big conversation about world maps. Okay, sidebar, I'm going to interrupt myself interrupting you, Andrew. <laughs> I just bought a world map for our kitchen, a big world map. And huh. it is fascinating. I'm not going into the geopolitics of this Russian-made map, but I will say this. Every <laughs> yes. map good, tells good a story. Call. Every map is saying something. So as you know, longitude in the world are the vertical lines on the maps, you know, yes. of degrees. Zero degrees goes through what city, Andrew? Oh, Greenwich? Yeah, Greenwich, yes. England. I, I just totally butchered that pronunciation. It's okay. I'm, just... Did you know, Eli, I'm trying to arrange a call right now with a guy in the UK, and I thought everybody was on GMT time, but he's on BST time, which is different within the UK. Really? Uh, apparently. What does BST stand for? I don't even know, but British I British standard? It up. Maybe. So GMT is Greenwich Mean Time or yes. UTZ. Anyway, so that norm like often you have zero down the middle of the map, the you know, with Greenwich in the middle, and then yep. going to the side. I, my friend has a Cold War map that has the US right in the middle, and all the other large land <laughs> masses are split around. And our current world map has what city smack in the center of the map? Uh, Mahachkala? I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's Russian-made. Uh, Moscow. 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 Yeah, they yeah. have 40 degrees east is like the center of the map. Uh, and that, interesting. if you're a Russian, that would make sense. Anyway, it's yeah. just very interesting. I might cut all of that. But anyway. <laughs> so Usually when we give a disclaimer like that, we leave it in. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to give a big thanks to Matthew and Craig for being yes. early adapters. And we want to invite more of you to come on board and we're going to throw a big party when we hit, when we break even on our overhead, our monthly overhead of That's $22. Awesome. And they're both avid Caucasus fans. Matthew and Stephanie um, traveled through the Caucasus last year, 2018. And uh, Craig is coming in 2020. So... Um, that's really cool, investing in what you guys care about. That's, that's called putting your money where your mouth is. That's right. All right. So, yeah, check that out on our website, Patreon. Um, speaking of unveiling, You've Eli, got some news, man. Man, I have been working hard on this, and I'm excited to say um, with uh, the tour company I work with, Beyond Red Square, we are finally launching some cultural tours of the North Caucasus that are affordable. To whoa, the average person. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, yes. And so a little bit about how uh, this whole kind of travel deal works is essentially you have private tours where you go with either by yourself or with a group, small group of friends. Um, you have your own guide. It's just you and your friends and you travel. Or there are public tours where you as an individual join a tour that others from around the world could join. Um, each of course has their advantages. Uh, sure. the main, the main thing we've learned with private tours is they typically just are more expensive because, yeah. you know, if a party of two just wants their own guide and their own kind of private experience, custom experience, it costs more. Um, but for public tours, what's great is you can set the price lower, uh, assuming, you know, six or eight people book 
and you just have to pay that price for yourself. You don't have to, it's, you're not paying for the private experience. So, right. um, one thing I've noticed in all of the different, uh, touring that is happening through this region is there was essentially, this didn't exist, this affordable, seriously, pu- public cultural tour through the North Caucasus. There are a couple things out there, but they're really hard to find. Sure. And, um, so that's what I've been working on, like literally half this year. All right. Phil, to define cultural tour. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, so it's it's we're not climbing El Bruce. It's not like a um mm-hmm. you know, it's not for those brave ones of you who are uh mountain climbers, but it's essentially touring through a region, seeing the sights, experiencing the local culture. You have a local English-speaking guide accompanying you to give you the history, the context, um having opportunities to interact with locals as well. Um, so yeah, the kind of essentially what tours are, you know, the kind of touring just, that normal people do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, um, we just launched literally last week. Um, we've got two different, um, tours through the region. One is the central Caucasus. And so that's, it's a nine day tour, uh, the Mount Elbrus region where you'll interact some with, uh, the local ball, ball population. Um, the uh, North Ossetia, so Vladikavkaz mm-hmm. and uh, some of the mountain valleys there, the Ossetians, Ingushetia, two days to see the beautiful towers there. Yep. And then Chechnya, Grozny, as well as the mountains there. So uh, trying to give a comprehensive experience of the Central Caucasus, four different nationalities, um, and really seeing a lot of the beautiful sites. So uh, that's one. We've got dates going in uh, late May. And early September for the Central Caucasus. Those are going to be so beautiful. And then, yeah, that's, so that's the good weather time. May is when it's really green. It's not too hot yet. And then September is when the hot weather's kind of passed and it's, um, leaves are starting to change colors. Um, and then we've got, we finally launched a Dagestan tour. I'm so excited about this. Yeah. Put a lot, a lot of time and work into this energy into this. And we've got a nine-day, we're calling it Delightful Dagestan, nine-day oh, tour. Oh, man. Um, Mahachkala, and then um, five days in the mountains. So uh, you're going to be seeing a lot of the highlights of the Dagestani mountains. Andrew, G- I'm, Gunib, I'm, just, yeah. I'm just flipping through my email. I don't, I don't see anything from you about, about the, the private uh, uh, dinner chit-chat with, with Caucus Talk host Eli. I, 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 maybe it just didn't come through yet. Uh, we can talk about that later. I'm sure that'll be... You I'm know, assuming the demand at, is going to come at pile least in for one that. part of it. <laughs> we might have to tweak the itinerary a Darn. little bit. Um, no, uh, five yeah. days in the mountains is going to be amazing. Go on. You were saying, where are they going to go in the mountains? Essentially, like hitting the highlights, um, the Gunib area, which uh, where was where a lot of Imam Shamil's battles mm-hmm. took place during the Russia Caucasus War. Um, you're going to see some of the handicrafts made uh, up in the mountains, uh, Balhar. Is where uh, some of the famous pottery is made. Yep. Kubachi is also um, where um, silversmiths. Silversmith. Thank you. I get all these words mixed up: metal inlay and all that. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. And There's then, of lot. course, way up in the mountains, you have some of these abandoned villages, beautiful waterfalls, um, mountain gorges. And then we're going to end the trip with two days in Derbent, of course, oh. which is a must for anybody visiting. Which Dark is not Stone. only the citadel, which is this. Five million year old, you know, citadel, five thousand. But um, 
2000, whatever. <laughs> but the city itself is really eclectic from, yes. from what I've seen, and there's a lot yeah. of interesting stuff there. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the Dagestan tour is also going to be running nine days, early June and late September. And so podcast listeners, I designed these with a lot of you in mind. Um, you guys are interested in this region. We really worked hard to make it affordable for your average traveler. Um, and the way they're, they're built is so that it's really designed to give you a maximal amount of exploring yourself. Keep your evenings free. Check out the cities where you are. Do some hiking if you want um, to give you opportunities to meet local people. So That is awesome. If you are listening to this right now and are interested, would love to hear you, um, to send you some of the itineraries, to send you more details. Would love to start a conversation about that. So you can uh, email me at the podcast email, podcast at caucustalk.com. Yep. Um, you could email me at my work email, andrew at beyondredsquare.com. Or just uh, you could go on our website, beyondredsquare.com, and check out the itineraries, Heart of the Caucasus and Delightful Dagestan. And I'm just going to put a link in the show notes just because I'm pumped about it. Thank you. Yeah, well, and we'll definitely news, advertise man. those on our Facebook page as well. But I'm, I'm psyched. I'm, I'm really hoping this will be a way we can serve Psych you podcast listeners. Yeah. Uh, and others interested in the region. So, yeah. Unveiled. Unveiled. Just like that. All right. Well, before we get into today's content, which is going to be a new mini series, a new year end mini series, um, yes. we got we got a little news minute to throw in here. Now, a lot of you uh, may be familiar with the uh, sterling reputation of the United States Postal Service, uh, something of which we are quite proud. There is a unofficial motto that people, you know, sort of use in connection with the Postal Service. It goes something like, neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. Or uh, that's one iteration. I, mean, <laughs> I thought that last one was going to rhyme, but... It's supposed to, isn't it, right? I'm least <laughs> I can find one that rhymes. But anyway, and it's true. We, you know, from the Pony Express and the, and the you know, Alaskan Husky kind of sleigh thing, like this idea that nothing stops the U.S. Post Service. Well... That may be true, but I want to uh, let Andrew just give us some uh, a little news minute here uh, that is going to, uh, I think, give everyone a great appreciation for the Russian Postal Service. That's right. Long live the Postal Service. May Amazon and UPS not put them out of business in America. And may they or, ship here. Or in Russia. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so uh, amazing just article I found recently uh, on the internet. Um, in North Ossetia is still working today. Russia's oldest postwoman. We love these oldest ladies. <laughs> oh man. Like literally all the oldest in Russia claims come from the Caucasus. It's okay. But let me just, let me just set the stage. Cause when I think of the oldest lady, I'm thinking like, there she is at the desk going like real slow, doing the stamp and, sh- and she's there yeah. every day kind of thing. Not so like with this pre- lady. Yeah, in her pre-retirement years, like your early 60s or something, you know? Yeah, but, but even uh, like an old lady holding on, like she's going to be back there sorting papers, right. right? So this lady is 83 years old. Her name <laughs> is Ekaterina Zalayeva. So she's a Setian. Mm-hmm. And she does a 25-mile round-trip post route six days a week on foot. <laughs> So 40 kilometers. I'm sorry. 
Who does Amazing. that? She's apparently Ekaterina does because she's been doing it 50 years. Um, it really is an amazing. We got to get a link in the the. She's um, been doing a twenty-five mile daily route for fifty years. Six six days a week. Um, so rest rest her feet on Sundays probably. Oh my god. Um, but man, uh, props to Ekaterina. And so she does say now she occasionally will uh, hitchhike her way around the route for obvious reasons. Um, but the video Sell is really out. cool. Yeah, the video is really cool. Um, it interviews her you can see how beautiful the route is she actually does it she does it to three villages in the say um canyon which is that is where um Asetia's ski resort is um ski slopes are so there's so going to be some snow there it's very scenic um oh and she walks her way up that that valley every single i, I just did some day. quick math assuming that she takes two weeks off a year and then she's doing this six days a week and she hasn't missed a day or week or year <laughs> Even if she has this, is pretty impressive. How many miles has she logged on foot doing this for 50 oh years? 375,000 miles on foot. That is amazing. That's more than most cars last. That's more than all cars last. I don't know. I was car shopping here, Andrew, and there are some <laughs> cars here that have... This, so, this sounds like one of those exaggerated caucuses. That is over claims. 16 times around the globe on foot. <laughs> wow. Ekaterina, we salute you. Our hats off to you. That is amazing. I, I uh, met, I was home in the States this past summer and actually ran into uh, the postman who delivered our mail when I was a child. So wow. literally we had, we had known each other. Um, what am I now? Yeah, I mean, for 30 years, we hadn't, I still recognized him. Um, so props to the postal service workers all over the world, but especially Ekaterina Zalava in North Ossetia. I just want to say my experience with the Russian postal service has been terrific. It's, the, you know what, they're getting, I, w- I will say they have in the past, you never knew what you're going to get, but I, I agree. <laughs> my experiences are getting better and better. Mail's coming faster. The ladies uh, get you your packages quickly. Wow. So. Well, should we get into today's content? We're let's only, do it. New miniseries. I'm pumped. We're only 20 minutes into the episode. So. <laughs> All right. Do you want to introduce our miniseries here, Andrew? Yeah. So uh, Eli made a great observation recently um, just about how some of these kind of places we um, pass through or interact in or visit every single day in our lives here in the North Caucasus, they really tell you a lot about life here. And so we're just going to do um, a new miniseries called A Day in the Caucasus Life. Yeah. And we're going to hit on a few key locations that, if you unpack them, tell you a lot about the culture and uh, the place here. And you know what? Just for anyone listening who's not in the Caucasus, this is true of anywhere you live. If you unpack some of the rituals that we go through and the places that we visit every day, you'll find a lot. That's right. So we're, we're going to kick it off with um, playgrounds. You know, I, I, I pitched this to Andrew as what's in a playground after his vigorous feature-ling what's in a street name. <laughs> it still lives on. <laughs> which is on temporary hiatus. <laughs> What's in a stream, but what's in a playground? So uh, where we live in in Dagestan is in a courtyard with a hat, which has 
four apartment buildings on all yep. four sides, you know, offset so that there's a driveway coming in. And then you can drive around this central um, plaza in the middle called the Ploshit, which is yep. like square plaza, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is the this is the Soviet plan. You'll see this from Kazakhstan to Romania. You know, you'll see this all across the Soviet world, these squares huh. of apartment buildings yep. around a central place. And it's, you know, the idea, there's a lot of ideas into it, just kind of the communal living. Today, ours has a big, fairly new playground built. And I've, So we live on the second floor. We send our older kids out there by themselves. We look out the window. We call them in for dinner, and we can just sit there and people watch. And there's a lot going on in the playground. For sure. As I started unpacking it, I thought that this could be interesting to share. So, Andrew, what what would you say are some things that are pretty common to all or majority many playgrounds in – Russia or the North Caucasus that you've seen. Yeah. Um, So let's clarify here. Um, There are, you just described playgrounds in. Oh, um, totally need to clarify this. Yes. They're not always like that. But uh, of course there are nice playgrounds and parks all over the city, but we're, and we take our kids to those, but we're specifically talking about playgrounds in courtyards near apartment buildings. Right. Because, between me and you, I mean, how many hours have we logged at those things with our kids? Right. <laughs> Lots. So, yeah, uh, I would say um, there are always um, elderly folks, older, yes. usually usually grandmas, sometimes uh, grandpas, mm-hmm. who are sitting on benches and talking at the yep. playgrounds. That's a big one. That's on my yeah. list. There usually are um, some kind of uh, collection of stray dogs. <laughs> who are uh communing together at the playground that's on my list <laughs> yeah um i mean they all have some version of a swing set yep. a slide yep and some monkey bars where to start let's start with the babushkas if I were not like an early riser, I would think they are there 24 hours a day. <laughs> but I know from early morning, they're not always there in the very early morning, but I'm talking like yeah. before 7 a.m. Right. From 7 a.m. until after midnight, there are grandmas and grandpas out Man. on the playground. Yeah. In fact, our door, our doorway, our stairwell that goes out to the playground has never been closed. Because right in at the stoop of our stir, of our doorway, there are between <laughs> one and like nine old ladies sitting, chatting right at the entrance. Yeah, right. At the, and so, literally, our door has never been closed. Like normally, you would need a key to open the door to your stairwell to go in. <laughs> Ours does not even have a lock. The entrance to the building—that's a whole other like subject. That's a whole <laughs> other place, right? Um. And something that we have here that I didn't see as much in Pitigorsk is the grandpas. And they are playing, what are they playing? Uh, I'm assuming backgammon. You got it. Backgammon. Yeah. Night and day. Wow. I, mean, I counted nine of them huddled around a game the other day. And when it snowed, they were in this little, uh, like, shelter, this little <laughs> a, 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 a social pagoda. 
That's awesome. And in fact, my son said to me this morning, I said, I was asking them what they, uh, their impression of the playground. And he says, I think that one babushka owns it. Because <laughs> she's always there and she's, you know, holding court all the time. It, so I think it really, that right there speaks to like, often the grandmas have their, their dogs on a leash. That's something here at our local playgrounds we notice. Or cats on a um, leash, I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> but like they just, they really value being outside. You know, obviously they're not as spry as they used to be and not as able to get out and about, but they like to spend a lot of their time outside in the fresh air. We already talked about gulliarding. Yep. Without fail, whenever we come or go from the apartment, one of them is like, oh, you gulliarding today? Like, is that, yep. that's just like what you do, you know, are you getting out? So that is a huge yeah. value of like old people being out in the, in the elements. Right. Yeah. It's very cool. All right. Second thing that we have is play equipment, but the play equipment here, uh, a lot of it, some is new, some is old. Yeah. The swings are all on iron bars instead of chains. Yep. This was something that we noticed right at first. Like we use chains in the U.S., and here they yeah. just have solid iron bars. I don't know if that's significant, but um, most of them are solid wood seats too, yes. not the softer, yeah, uh, whatever tire or whatever it is. The big thing that I've noticed about um, the play equipment is it is not designed to eliminate all risk. <laughs> no, <laughs> this is something. This is a feature of that has developed in the last several decades in the U.S., where playgrounds are really designed more for adults avoiding lawsuits rather than huh. children playing and developing. Yeah. And many playgrounds are very boring, in my view, and in my children's view in the U.S. I actually found this huh. quote on um, uh, the website Vox. They are talking about this sort of change in playgrounds and the need right. for risk. Vox says, U.S. playground designers spent decades figuring out how to minimize risk, reducing heights, softening surfaces, and limiting loose parts. But now, some are experimenting with creating risk. A growing body of research has found that risky outdoor play is key part to ch children's health, promoting social interactions, creativity, problem solving, and resilience. So when you look at what huh. we do with like our play spaces and our kids' spaces— you're, you're going to find out, like, what are we trying to do here? What do we see as most important? What do we yeah. value? Of course, nobody wants a kid to fall from a great height and get seriously injured. Right. Nobody is desiring that. Yeah. But at the same time, um, if it's overprotected, there's a potential trade-off with different issues of development. Yeah. Sociologists have long studied play and what it does and what it's for. And there's a ton there about, like, self, the creation of... Uh, personal identity by play and risk and negotiating those things and huh. um, also creating social networks and depending on each other. And um, I was just talking to a friend who was literally raised in a treehouse in Oregon. Wow. So his parents had a, built a treehouse, like an actual house in a tree, not just like a little perch. <laughs> they had a, a cast iron bathtub that they heated with firewood outside. And he said he had a lot of, you know, bruises and broken bones and stuff growing up, but he learned his limits and he learned how to take, take risks. Huh. And today his work is in primitive jungle uh, doing research on uh, languages that huh. is very high risk. So 
I've read about that. I've read, uh, I read about a playground in New York that is experimenting with this where they actually, essentially it's like a construction site yes. and they, they don't allow parents inside of it right? and they make available hammers and nails and, you know. So this is an idea called adventure playgrounds and it was, huh. it came out of post-World War II where in some places in Europe, there was all these piles of stuff from the war and kids yeah. would just go in there and start tinkering. And they saw that as a, as a really, like a really good thing. And yeah. uh, it's starting to catch on in the U.S. Yeah. Well, I've noticed with our kids too. I mean, we have, there's three playgrounds within very short walking distance of our apartment building and different yeah. courtyards of surrounding buildings. And we are regulars at two of them. And the one directly behind our building, it has very minimal equipment. It, it literally has one slide and two swings. Mm-hmm. But they have an absolute blast there. They like, they find things to do playing. They interact with the dogs that are there. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's often other kids that they play with. And like, it's not the equipment itself that facilitates the, exactly. the fun and activity, you know? And what often happens is the equipment can be a limiting factor rather than a facilitating factor. That particular patch of land has rocks. It has sticks and yep. piles of leaves. It has a lot of other Fruit stuff. Trees. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, things for them to explore. There's the, the back of the metal garages. I mean, there's right. And so it, these are things that we kind of overlook or maybe judge prejudge or, or prematurely kind of yeah, conclude, Oh, this, this looks crummy. This looks, you know, broken down, but actually there's a, like children will play. Yep, wherever you true. put them, you know. And there are definitely like very fancy playgrounds, particularly in Moscow. They've got like yeah. playground galore and they've got squishy grounds and all this stuff. And I'm not blanket criticizing those. You can have really those, creative playgrounds. Those soft, soft Muscovites. <laughs> <laughs> Who live at negative 30 half a year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So we've got the babushkas. We've got some play equipment. Um and then kind of the stray animals is a good one. I have that on my list. I, I think it's interesting. There's a whole thing on like how Russians view stray animals, which I to don't totally have my head around, but they see them right. as like, I don't know if they're just tolerated or if they're welcomed, if it's a social good. Yeah. But they love their stray animals. They feed them. They will like go buy food and put them out. So what you have is stray animals, many of whom are very docile and well-fed, maybe not clean but our kids are like out there trapping cats and like picking them up and you know that's a kind of play that i'm actually kind of grateful for they have to wash when they get inside yeah yeah it's true i actually this happened within the last month there are two uh stray dogs that um are at the playground air house one is vasya and one is kuzia and <laughs> are they part well, of the tour I'm, part of the culture uh, <laughs> no come meet Vasya come feed Vasya but uh our it took us a while but Vasya got to the point where he was like he really loved our kids and our kids really loved him and uh he would let our two-year-old and my five-year-old just go up to him hug him Aww. uh pet him and about a month ago 
he somehow passed away. One of the the neighborhood uh, grandmas told grandpas told me he thought somebody poisoned him or something or gave him bad meat or something. Oh dear. Um, but my kids, especially my five year old, was heartbroken because um, that was a part of their playground experience. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it is. Yeah. And I'm not saying you know I get like there's public health things and wild animals etc. Hear me out. I'm just saying that. Uh, there's a whole world of values packed into this and how people relate to, you know, right. Animals without collars. And, and a lot of these ways are different from what I, you know, expected or grew up with. All right. So we've got babushkas and dedushkas. We've got the play equipment that is not risk free. We've got the animals who are also not risk free, but are very humanizing for little kids. All right. The last one is probably the biggest one. And I think it's, Predominant throughout the Caucasus, it is sure. super predominant in Dagestan. Uh huh. And this is the pull-up bars. <laughs> yep. Pull-up bars are everywhere, and they are a part of the daily flow. The ebb and flow, the warp and woof of life includes pull-up bars. Yeah. I have been noticing just looking at my, our, our playground has three little kid things, each with a, like a short, you know, three foot slide or whatever, right. one big slide. And then two multi-layer pull-up bar stations and two, um, monkey bar <laughs> stations. And the monkey bar stations include like a fireman's pole, a rope, and rings wow. and monkey bars. And then the pull-up bar stations are like seven different height, just pull-up bars. And there are yeah. two of each of those on our, in our playground area. Yeah, yeah. This is just amazing to me. Men, women, and children at all hours of the day will be out there hanging on or working out, more likely working out on pull-up bars. Yeah, yeah. It's true. The deeper you go into the Caucasus, you're right, that they're everywhere. This is, is like... The, pull, the two things are pull-up bars and dip bars or parallel bars that you, you know, you suspend uh-huh. yourself by your, your hands above it and then you lower down. And if you're me, that's where you stop. But if you're yeah. them, then you go back up lots of times. Yeah. <laughs> you have to ask, what is going on here? <laughs> like, what is going on here? Why are, how are pull-ups so popular? Andrew, what well, would I, you say? I mean, what, what would you conjecture? Well, I think, I mean... We talked about this uh, a long time ago, oh, episode 29 and 30 maybe, about sports in the Caucasus. Yes. And we talked about how specifically wrestling and hand-to-hand combat is, and specifically in Dagestan, that's the sport, you yes. know? And um, I think it's connected to that, that uh, right. there's a singular focus on building strength. Uh, it's completely free to do in public, you know? Yes. And there's that communal aspect to it of doing it with others. So I think you hit the big ones. I think the communal thing is something that I have underappreciated. So like the high school guys, their time is like five to seven on the pull-up bars and they'll just loiter and they'll do a set and then they'll like stop and talk. I don't know. And they're just hanging out and they'll wander around and then eat something and then just more pull-ups. So over the course of an hour, they're just doing lots of sets of pull-ups. That's just yep. where that you know where they are, what they're doing, and they're 
My nine-year-old, his friends just, they did, they did an obstacle course. And yeah. it was all on the pull-up bars. It was like going from one to the next. And, wow. you know, he, he realizes he has a little catching up to do because this is not something that we come from, like doing pull-ups all oh, the time. Man. Um, I was always the worst at doing pull-ups. <laughs> and they're everywhere. I, I I counted this morning on my walk to my kid's preschool, which is like 12 <laughs> minutes, like a half mile walk. I pass five, if you include the high school, six sets of pull-up bars. Wow. In different locations. In a 10 minute walk, six separate, seven, if you include the two on my, <laughs> in my, on our playground yeah, right in front of that's our place. Crazy. My only other story of this, the other weekend we drove up, uh, the hill right next to the city here, which is just open kind of scrubland and pasture land right next to Mahashkala. Yeah. Uh-huh. And we're going up this winding road and we're fully out of the city now. It's just like open fields and trees. And we come around a bend and there, and there's this beautiful little clearing with nothing else around, no houses, no anything on a dirt road. And there's yeah. a pull-up bar and a set of dip bars, parallel bars, just like in cement. Out there in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. There just isn't a widespread culture of uh, gyms here, of like fitness centers, i.e. doing it inside with lots of expensive equipment, treadmills, et cetera, you know, weights. Uh, There is an outdoor culture of at parks working out, you know? Yep. And uh, again, I think it goes back to like, one of the reasons lots of boys start wrestling in Dagestan is because it's completely accessible to everybody. The only thing you have to purchase is a, a singlet and that's it. Yep. Um, and so like economic wise, it's accessible yes, to people. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that is a big, a big factor. Yeah. I was just listening to some statistics on longevity, which is a big thing here in the Caucasus. Um, and people are always talking about what food, you know, is it garlic? Is it red wine? Like what gives you the long life? You know, da, 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 da. But really more and more people, I think the, the evidence is showing that it's, it's a healthy living in a social context. Huh. And that's one thing I really appreciate about this is that these squares bring people together. Yeah. You know, there's togetherness. As soon as you leave your front door, there's people and we're together. And yeah, I mean, I've. I can honestly say we've lived in this building uh, four and a half years in, in this apartment building in Pitygorsk. We've gotten to know some of our neighbors better uh, outside on the playgrounds than we have our next door neighbors in the building. Right. <laughs> um, because they are gathering places. I mean, it's just, it really is a part of daily life. You know, I, I'm not there every day, but probably four days a week I'm at a playground with my kids. And so like, it is just a place where life happens. And so I think those are great insights you have. It does tell you a lot about where we live because of their importance in people's lives, you know? Yeah. Good stuff. So that was, uh, listeners, that was our first, we're going to do three episodes about day, a day and the daily Caucasus life. Yeah, man. And, um, yeah, we got some other good ones coming up here into December. So um, thanks for listening. As always, um, any feedback you have, we love hearing from you. Reach out to us at podcast at caucustalk.com and check out our Facebook page. We're posting fresh content 
Don't forget um, to click through to our Patreon page. Consider yes. becoming a supporter one time or monthly of Caucus Talk. We are all over the internet, so. <laughs> Hard to miss us. <laughs> yeah. But um, thank you for listening. We love hearing from you. This was episode 62 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus, mountains of Russia. We'll see you when you get here.